morning. Welcome everyone for listening. This is Joni Holm. I'm filling in for Joan Hogan for Prairie Doc Radio. I'm here with my husband Rick, who is an internist with the Avera Medical Group in Brookings. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. Uh, we would like to introduce our guest, Ellie Nysis, who is an RN in the emergency department of the Brookings Health System. And today we're going to be talking about emergency care, rural medicine, a variety of topics along that line. If, if you would like to call us with your question, please call us at 692-1430. I should add that Ellie uh, spent a couple months with me this last year. Uh, uh, shadowing me and following me and learning and uh, as I learned from her uh, as she's doing her advanced practice training and becoming a nurse practitioner and who and you will uh, soon be working at Sanford so congratulations on your your new job and what's coming oh I'm gonna turn this off I can't take it <laughs> but uh, the uh, we're, we're glad to have you in the emergency room for the time being and you have that expertise that 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 perspective of a person who works in the emergency room and we're gonna have rural health care show tomorrow night and that's why we're talking emergency care and emergency room stuff uh, today and we are a somewhat rural community I mean I guess you could say we're urban in a way but we uh, the ER and you can speak to this Ellie but we mm-hmm. accommodate Estherline Arlington white uh, and areas that are rural so how long have you worked in the emergency room I've worked in the Brookings emergency department for four years and I just want to go ahead and thank you both Dr. Holm and Joni for having me here today um, it's a very important topic um, that we're discussing we certainly service a lot of rural communities even though Brookings is kind of a, a hopping little South Dakota mm-hmm. town um, yeah. we have a lot of wonderful um, uh, EMTs that volunteer out in our rural com- communities and they do respond to your 911 calls um, as well as our uh, EMS services right here in Brookings it's something like uh, 75% of all services provided in rural communities like I need to turn this off. Uh, like <laughs> the smaller communities. Like uh, fire and ambulance and all that is generally provided uh, by people Volunteers. who are volunteering. And, uh, you know, how great is that for our communities? Uh, and we thank the volunteers, uh, people who do good things. And no, that's not the case here in Brookings. That's Correct. right. Tell no, us a little bit about who mans, uh, who takes care of our emergency services. Yeah, the Brookings uh, Ambulance Service is, um, they are they are paid. Um, these people are doing it as their career. Um, they're highly trained. Um, you know, we have the EMT, which is the same provider level that you would have in, in the rural ambulance service. But uh, the Brookings Ambulance has a, a paramedic and an EMT on every rig. Um, they are highly trained, highly specialized, and highly talented people. We're very uh, blessed here in Brookings to have some paramedics that are just rock stars. So explain that. Uh, people uh, have uh, first aid training. That's one level. Uh, they, there's another level, and then there's EMTs, and then there's a paramedic level. Explain the, the transition and why. So the, the EMTs, they have, they're trained in, in basic life support, um, so they are able to um, administer basic life-saving measures. CPR. CPR, oxygen, um, stabilize a wound and get you to the hospital. Now the paramedics are uh, 
much uh, more specialized where they can um, make uh, major decisions about your treatment, what medications you receive, um, do more advanced life-saving measures, such as if you can't breathe on your own, they could, you know, uh, intubate you. Uh, what are, which means? Uh, to put a tube down the trachea, so if someone isn't breathing on their own, we can breathe for you uh, by putting a tube down and using a bag to ventilate, which means to give breaths um, to a patient. So um, the... Uh, paramedic is that advanced the level. paramedic is at that advanced level where they are they are able to make uh, major decisions out in the field uh, you know without a doctor telling them what to do they know exactly what to do right and when they arrive at the emergency room then it your job as the nurse and the other staff and are we always staff with a physician in our emergency room no we're not we are we have we always practice Yes, we always have a provider there 24 hours per day. We have uh, two physicians and one coming on board soon, so we have three who's medical the, doctors in the emergency w department. Do we know who the, the new doctor coming um, on board? I know he's coming from Watertown. Um, I don't know his name off the top of my head, okay. but he comes uh, with a great deal of experience and highly regarded. Uh, so we'll have the three doctors in the uh, Brookings Health System Emergency Department, and we also have um, two physician assistants and one nurse practitioner that work there, and they are all absolutely superb. wonderful. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I would say that it's probably the hardest job to, to be a care provider in the emergency room because not only do you need to have an immense talent knowing when this is something that needs to be pushed fast, to recognize all of these emergent um, uh, problems. and severe problems, uh, but also to, to understand the psychological part of it all because there is a huge emotional component of working in the emergency room. So my, my sense, and then, then after you do the workup, the question is how much workup do you do? How far do you do? How much do you spend? And uh, how aggressive do you are you? And including the very elderly or people who are certainly dying from whatever it might be, how aggressive are you? Or when is it time to quit? That's mm -hmm. a more difficult question. And Joni, you're waving at me saying we need to take a break. First. We need to take our first break. Thank you again for listening to Prairie Doc Radio. We will uh, take your questions at 692-1430 and we'll be right back after this message. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. This is Joni Holm filling in for Joan Hogan. Uh, we're in the studio today with Rick Holm and Ellie Nysis, and we're talking about the emergency department and rural care. Uh, Rick, we're, you were just about to talk about uh, how much care to provide. If you want to finish up on that, and then we want to move into some... So that, no, the whole issue is how challenging it is to work in the emergency room. And... Um, there's a lot of demand. Some of it is, I need drugs. I want and I want uh, narcotics. People abusing the system will go there first. Uh, anybody and everybody can go to the emergency room. The, the emergency room cannot turn people away going, you know, this is a malingering, fake, not real deal, or you're a person who wants something from us that we can't provide, get away from here. You got to take them all. And I think that's a, a very important point, that the government has made that rule, and I think it's right that, that the, the hospitals that provide emergency services provide them for all in any scenario. So the, but if I was going to pick an objective for today's discussion with you, Ellie and Joni, it, it would be people need to know 
how to when is the time to come to the emergency room when do you go to the clinic when do you go to the emergency room the value of establishing care in a community let's let's uh, let's address that and see if by the time we're done today which is a short bit uh, will they have a sense of understanding uh, this issue uh, what's your take on those so points? that's such an important issue dr. Holm and I'm glad that you brought it up um, Unfortunately, I think in our in our modern age, we've kind of lost the ability to take care of ourselves at home or to know what's life-threatening and what's not. Um, there's a great uh, quote by uh, Dr. Tirana Lodog that she wrote a book called Healthy at Home, and she said, in this modern age, we're increasingly at risk for losing the basic knowledge of how to maintain our health and the health of our families. Um, now, particularly, uh, it seems to be younger people have a hard time knowing how to take care of minor health issues at home. Um, we definitely want you to come into the emergency department um, when necessary. But one thing that's, I think, really important for learning uh, what's an emergency and what's not is to establish care with a primary care doctor in a family practice um, in your community and to see them for your wellness checkups and to ask questions and say okay I have diabetes when will I know I'm having an emergency and need to call 911 I have um, COPD or emphysema and when do I need to go to the emergency department um, or and if I'm a little kid that's uh, suddenly coughing and sick, or if I've got a runny nose, or I've got quote-unquote sinusitis, or yes. my ears are starting, when do I seek care? You know, yes. those, are, those are tough issues. And I'm going to quick toss in, and as an advanced practice nurse, you will be working with young people soon. You already do. But I'm launching a new website um, called Eat, Sleep, Play. And that's what you need to look at, parents. Does your child eat, sleep, and play? And if they do those things, it's probably not an emergency. Um, there might be the rare time if they're, uh, you know, cut or something like that, but they're probably not going to be eating, sleeping, and playing if they've been right. injured. Right. So look at the basics, and that's what you're saying. Even with emergency care, with outpatient care, look at the basics. Are they eating well? Are they sleeping well? You know, are they playing? Chances are they're not going to need an antibiotic. Chances are they don't need to come in and be, you know, spend a thousand million dollars trying to figure out if there's something wrong. If they're eating, sleeping, playing. It's a great point, Joni. Um, but there's a time when people don't come when they should. Exactly. Now, what are we the need big to turn ones? that around. Ellie, what are the big things that people ignore and, and it's a delay inappropriately? I think that a, a good rule of thumb for people is if there's a, a change in a major body function, if there's a change in your ability to breathe, if there's a change in your ability to move, um, if your loved one suddenly can't talk, major changes, you need to call 911. Don't question it. One of the mistakes that people make is think, oh, you know what, my loved one is, is they're slurring their speech and they're confused and they don't know what they're talking about and, well, maybe it'll get better in a few hours. I'll try to feed them a sandwich and, and we'll see what happens. Well, you know, they could be having a stroke and with big emergencies and big health changes, time is everything. We need you to get in um, so that we can give you those life-saving measures. Um, my own husband had a stroke, and he was lucky enough to, to be with someone who was um, actually a, a rural EMT, like we were talking about earlier, and he got him into the emergency department right away, and he had life-saving um, 
measures uh, taken at both here at Brookings Hospital and at the Sanford Medical Center in Sioux Falls, and he is doing great today. So I just want to encourage you that if there's if there's a major change um, in a major body function, then there could be a big emergency going on, and don't blow it off. Listen to your gut and don't ignore that. I w- let P- me follow on that. Uh, we can use clot buster drugs in a new stroke, in certain new strokes, not all of them. And certainly you need to make sure it's not a stroke that's due to a bleed because you could be catastrophic if you added the blood clot buster drug to a bleed. So you have to have certain things done. The clot buster drug will only work if it's within the first three hours. That's right. So if you go, oh, well, we'll give it a, you know, give it a couple hours. By the time you get in and a CAT scan and all is done and you've gone the three hours, the stroke is permanent, the clot buster drug won't make a difference. Now that goes also for an acute myocardial infarction. If you can catch it at that very heart first attack. heart attack. What did I say? <laughs> myocardial infarction. Yeah, heart attack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our I'm sorry, speak. Yeah, yeah. Understand. <laughs> if you have an acute heart attack, sudden onset heart attack, they can reverse that heart attack by certain measures. Sometimes it's a clot busting drug. Sometimes it's uh, angioplasty within the first three hours. Yep. Again. Yep. And we also want to make note to our, our women listeners that the, the signs of a heart attack are not the same always in a man and a woman. So if, if a woman is having pain in her neck or pain in her back and it has an acute onset, which means it came on suddenly, um, and maybe you have some shortness of breath or maybe you're sweating or nauseous, uh, that could be a heart attack in a woman. So it, 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 it'd well, be worth uh, learning the different signs. It's a... Now, there's the real challenge because that same thing can happen with a diabetic or an old person. They may not have the crushing substernal uh, chest pain that radiates into the neck and down the arm. They'll have something else. And in that case, I think we're always going to say err on the cautious side. That's right. If in doubt, go on in and get checked. So there is the problem. Did you hear us? We just said a few minutes ago, don't come in for every little thing. You know, if you're playing and you're eating and you're... You're <laughs> sleeping, you know, if everything is fine, you know, don't, I mean, it's you know. It's not fine when you have pain in your chest. Yeah. I think, I think a good rule of thumb, too, with that is if the pain, if you have chest pain and it's worse when you move, it's probably not your heart. Right. You know, it's. That if the muscle, it's, for example, okay, so I'm doing my weights like I do every twice a week, you know, stretching, pulling trying to keep my muscular strength as I get to be an old fart and uh, so you sorry Bob I've (laughs) slipped up there so you keep your well the other day I was running and I'm moving my arms and as I'm moving my arms I can feel chest discomfort I go okay is this exertional chest pain or is this musculoskeletal well it was musculoskeletal I stopped it's moving your arm if you notice it when you're moving your arm if I'm running and I'm not having chest pain, I mean, if I can run and I'm, this thing doesn't happen, it happens when I'm moving my arms or my, you know, because I've been lifting heavy pails lately, then you know it's musculoskeletal. So that's the clue you're saying, is it? Yeah. Or if you, you know, you can press on that spot that hurts and you can take your thumb and you can push on it and it hurts. That's, that's probably your muscles in between your ribs that's hurting. Yeah. So, but, you know, we don't expect you to be a doctor and to figure all that out. Um, but, you know, there's some things you can do just to say, okay, this, prob- this probably isn't a heart attack. Um, and you can look at that. But if you're not sure, of course, we want you to, to call. And when you do call, um, I know, Joni, you wanted me to talk about some things that we should s- 
uh, encourage people to uh, share with the 911 dispatcher. When you call, uh, it is helpful if you can can tell them, uh, you know, you could say, has this ever happened before? Let the, the 911 dispatcher know, okay, my dad's having chest pain again. He had a heart attack two years ago. Give them some context there. Um, very important to tell them when this started happening. Did this start happening 30 minutes ago? Did the symptoms start happening three weeks ago? And that too, you can ask yourself, okay, if I've been having back pain for a month, do I need to call 911? Probably not. You probably need to go see your family doctor. Uh, but if something has come on suddenly, you make sure that you tell the 911 dispatcher when it started happening. That will help the, the, the ambulance to know um, kind of what's going on. And if you are living in a rural area, another thing we want to encourage you to do is not just to share your address, but you know, before you get off the phone with that dispatcher, GPS doesn't always take you to the right place. We all know that. So maybe you need to give a little directions. Um, and then while you're waiting for the ambulance to get there, the best thing that you can do is stay calm with your loved one that's having, having the health emergency. Um, if there is something that you know to do from a first aid standpoint, if they're bleeding and, and if you can dress that wound, um, if they are having chest pain and you can give them an, one adult aspirin or four baby aspirin, those are okay things to do. If someone's having trouble, you know, breathing, try to find the position where they can breathe the best, whether that would be in a recliner sitting up, whether that would be sitting forward with their elbows on their knees. Um, try to find that position where they can breathe um, the easiest. And, um, and again, just to stay calm uh, and keep the dispatcher updated. What about like it, basics, having the lights on, making sure the door is unlocked, yes. maybe putting a dog in a basement. Absolutely. Have a sack full of all the medicines the person is on. Yes. Bring that in. Medicine uh, history is always a very challenging uh, issue. I think the, the w one of the things that, you, that helps you know when a person should go to the emergency room or the clinic is when a person's having shortness of breath. That's pretty much an emergency room situation. Yes. And I mean, it's not, uh, if, if you're a person who has long-standing uh, emphysema and you are always short of breath, that's another story. But if there's new shortness of breath, generally you get the to the emergency room. Yep. Um, uh, yes, and mostly adults. I mean, I do see a lot of children with croup, and they have a perceived shortness of breath. And in that case, first of all, doing a steamed-up bathroom or taking them out in the cool air, those will often tell you whether you need to come in. There are cases when it doesn't go away and you need to come in, but many times right. they'll I'm an feel adult better. Doctor. You're yeah. the right. person. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to. Yeah. Uh, I think we should take here. a second break while we're at this point, and we'll be right back with you to continue this discussion on emergency care. Uh, and we hope you'll call us at 692 1430. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. This is Joni Home filling in for Joan Hogan. Uh, we're in the studio with Rick and Ellie Nysis, who's an RN with the emergency department at the Brookings Health System. And we're talking about different emergency care and acute care, and as well as primary care. When do we need to see our primary care provider versus coming into the emergency Let, room? Let's talk about fevers. Now, yes. I'm going to talk in the perspective of a, an adult, okay? Um, a person who has the most common cause of a fever is a viral respiratory infection. Viral infection will give fevers, ache all over, and uh, you could feel something's coming down, you know. That's that first one or two or three days. One, two days. If it starts lasting longer than two days, there's a problem. If you've got a cold, 
a respiratory thing, have that first two days of fever, ache all over, and then you have a hacky cough for two weeks. Classic picture. The sore throat in particular early on, and then that wanes, and your cough lasts for two weeks. Day four or five or six, you start having fever again. That's a bad sign because that very likely is pneumonia and bacterial pneumonia that comes on the heels of a viral respiratory infection is the common entrance. Uh, I've, I've lost a number of my patients in the last week and two weeks because there's a viral respiratory infection coming through and it just swept them uh, uh, right out the door uh, because they develop a secondary pneumonia. Okay, they sec- develop a secondary bacterial pneumonia. And you know, some, uh, my dad used to say, this is, you know, I'm just, I'm being a little, this is the way it is in life. You know, you live so long and something takes you from us. It, it commonly is the old man's friend. That's the thing that sometimes will take a person who's very, very frail at the end of their lives, often um, no longer able to know what's going on. But and let's make sure. these people go from a viral, Respiratory infection and then a bacterial infection that follows okay, four, five, or six. Okay, define days. that for us a little c- more clearly. If you're having a, a low-grade fever, some aches and pains, wait it out. Leave it alone. Don't come in. Don't look for an antibiotic. Avoid an antibiotic. It won't make things better. If on better. day five you develop a fever. You get a secondary fever. You come back with a second fever five days later. I've had a friend who sat on that for five days of huge raging fever, had pneumonia, just about killed him. So it's, it's a good thing to know. I mean, it sounds kind of crass. But the point is, when a person comes back with that secondary fever, we need to, to, to know it. Now, let's also talk about that. Back fe- up and talk about fevers. What is a fever and when do we need to treat it? A fever is your own body's way to treat an infection. And so oftentimes, um, we know that the fever, let's just put it this way. Let's take a boil on the arm. Someone has a big infection in the arm or an infection, a little boil on the eyelid. What's the treatment? Not an antibiotic. The treatment is heat. Put heat on that boil and heat on those eyes and the, the infection will come to a head and open and drain. Heat improves your ability to fight an infection. In fact, you know, a hundred years ago, people would come down with tuberculosis, going to kill them. It gives a low-grade fever. They would give them an infect, an, an inject, a, a an infection of serratia, which gives a significant fever that would kill the first infection. Uh, it was uh, syphilis, for example. They did the same thing. So my point is, fever is a good thing. I don't generally treat a fever. I leave the fever alone uh, and let it help me fight the infection. If I need uh, something for a, 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 a bacterial infection, I will allow the fever to run. Ellie, yeah, t- any comments? T- talk to, to us about when parents either call the emergency department or if they come in and they their child or themselves have a fever. What what kind of things do you teach them? So the, the point I make, and I, and I, I kind of want to put a billboard up in Brookings because I feel like nobody, uh, have, we have lost that knowledge that Dr. Holmes talking about, that, that fever is our friend. Um, there's a point where fever is a warning sign, but, but nine times out of 10, the fever is a good thing. Fevers help 
I always tell parents that come into the ER and they're in a panic because their kid has a fever of 102 or even 101, you know, not very high, and they're in a panic because they've had this fever for two days. You know, kids get fevers, and they, they aren't like adults where Dr. Holm was talking about, you know, if you have that just for a couple days and it keeps going, we need to look into it. But kids can have these fevers that go on for four or five days or, or sometimes longer, and it's just a minor viral illness. But the fever helps the immune system to ramp up and it actually fever causes the, a virus to unravel um, so to actually physically unravel so the body can take care of it sooner so i always tell parents um, when i'm giving them their discharge instructions after they've brought their child into the er um, and they're going home we know everything's okay i always uh, encourage them let the fever be uh, we don't treat the fever we treat the child and if your child is is having a fever and they're you know kind of want to lay around a little bit um, that's okay there's a reason for that they, they need to rest um, so always trying to fight the fever you're not getting anywhere you know you give that Tylenol or ibuprofen and the fever goes down and parents tend to feel like okay I'm, I'm winning I'm winning against the infection well you actually might be doing the opposite thing which is prolonging the infection because your body is very wise you trust your child's body that it knows what to do that fever is a good thing you don't always have to treat it but when they're when they're so uncomfortable this is the guide I give parents and maybe you can add to this Joni but if that child is so uncomfortable with their fever that they won't drink you need to treat treat it go ahead and treat that fever give that fever down so that they will drink the most important thing you can do when your child is sick is to give them comfort snuggle with them let them rest let them sleep and make sure they're drinking if they're not eating we're not worried about that kids can go days without eating a thing <laughs> but make sure they're drinking make sure they're peeing or having a wet diaper at least every six hours if they're going f longer than that you need to bring them in to get them checked out do you want to add to that Joni? Yeah. I think that's exactly right um, I tell parents that the fever is fine but to treat if the child is so uncomfortable that they're not eating or sleeping or drinking or sleeping because I totally agree with you the food is not important it's liquids and we just want to make sure the children are still drinking and having the wet diapers yeah. mm -hmm. and the height of the fever is not important in kids absolutely. parents think okay my kids got a fever 103 they're gonna get brain damage absolutely not they are not no data on that no data on that that uh, you know I actually I have a two-year-old I don't treat his fever until he gets to 104 and when I tell parents that they about fall over but he is fine like I said the body knows what mm -hmm. it's doing I think it's too bad that our society and I I, th I would include healthcare providers uh, somewhat that we do freak out a bit I remember taking a child's <laughs> temp in the clinic then I'm not sure why I did versus the the admitting nurse but it was like 104 or something and I kept my cool but I did go get some Tylenol <laughs> because we're just trained in our minds and we think that that high fever but well, in general no talk, it's not talk, the height of the fever that ad addresses the question about fever induced seizures I mean people particularly with little kids now I mean I've heard tell me if I'm wrong it isn't the height of the fever it's the change of the temp. Yeah. And if we're treating a fever with Tylenol, you know, the d fever hits a, the certain point, we treat the fever, the temperature drops, and then it climbs Yo -yo. again three hours later, and it's that up and down that makes the kid more uncomfortable Absolutely. and puts them at risk for seizures. Um, I guess I would, if there was a seizure, I would keep the temperature down by th every three to four hours Tylenol, but for a while. 
so there's your take on that there's no evidence that the height of a fever or how high a fever is is what causes um a seizure like you just said it is it's the evidence shows research shows it is the rate of change um so like we were we the point we've been making if the, if your child has a fever let it be if they're not drinking treat it um and right. it and if it's it going on for a long period of time and they seem to be getting worse rather than better you know have days and days have them checked go to the clinic but yep. that first day first 24 48 hours as long as they're eating sleeping playing we're good they're probably fine we got now, 30 seconds we left. are running out of time so tomorrow night you, we've yes. got a fabulous show with joy falkenberg who is a rural doc from custer area she's a rancher woman great personality wonderful knowledge uh, it should be a great show tomorrow night. So please watch On Call with the Prairie Doc tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Ellie, thanks so much for doing this. And Joni, is, when is Joan back? Next week? I don't think so. I can't remember. Uh, no. And Bob shrugs his shoulders. So, well, Joan is listening. Hello, Joan, and, and we'll be happy to have you home. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. And stay healthy out there.